Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Yeah, th- thank you. We can start. Good evening, everyone. My name is uh, uh, Pierluigi Mancarella. I'm the chair of Electoral Power Systems here at the University of Melbourne. I'm also part uh, of the Melbourne Energy Institute, uh, where I lead uh, the Energy Systems Program. And I would like to um, welcome you here at the University on behalf of the Melbourne Energy Institute uh, and uh, the Grattan Institute Partnership uh, supporting this event. But before, before going further, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this event is taking place, the land of the Wurundjeri, and pay respect to the elders and families. Well, we, we all know why um, we're here. So we, we gave its title to, to the Energy Future Seminar as the way back to affordable electricity. This is following the recent report from the ACCC into the electricity affordability inquiry. This in turn is following another recent report from the um, Grata Institute looking into potential reasons for high wholesale power prices. So it'll be a very interesting uh, event. I mean, it's, it's impressive actually to see many people are here. But now I would like to uh, give the word to the moderator of tonight, Ms. Emma Richardson, who is an economist and manager at uh, Deloitte Access Economics. Emma, please, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming out on such a cold night. I was, um, I was working from Melbourne today. I'm from Canberra, and so I saw the rain outside, and I thought, no, I'm definitely not jumping on the tram today. And so I pulled my phone out, and I, I got an Uber. And then while I was in the Uber, I kind of decided, well, I should use my time productively. And I answered some client emails, and uh, I texted my partner, who's back in Canberra tonight, and told him to make sure he's got dinner ready for tomorrow. And, and then I thought about uh, paying my mobile bill, and it was about $100 for this month. And my partner's is also about 100 for this month, so you know, collectively we pay a few hundred dollars every year, every month. And I thought about the old phone, the landline that we used to have in my home when I was younger, you know, with the, the turn keys. And I remember the first landline bill I got when I moved out was about $30 a month. And I thought, that's a massive price increase. I'm not going to tell you over how many years that was. But uh, that's a massive price increase. But I love my phone. I absolutely love it. And I'm happy to pay the money. So what is different about our electricity bills? And why are we at this point? We're at a crossroads in energy. Uh, As Rod has pointed out in his recently released report, In real terms, accounting for inflation, our electricity prices have increased 56% in the last 10 years. That is well above average price increases across any other type of product. And it's well in excess of wage increases, which have stagnated recently. Solar customers are paying roughly $450 less annually than non-solar customers which raises questions about the affordability and sustainability of that arrangement. How have we responded? Well, we've decreased our energy demand where it's possible by around 13% um, over that time period. Rod has said that the current situation is unsustainable and unacceptable and proposed 56 recommendations to address price increases in electricity. 
Tonight we've got Rod Sims, the chair of the ACCC, to speak to us and tell us about that recently released report and shed some light on any questions that you might have. Prior to his appointment at the ACCC, he was chairman of the Independent Pricing and Regulatory Tribunal of New South Wales, the commissioner of the National Competition Council, chairman of Infoco Asia, director of Ingenus, and a member of the Research and Policy Council of the Committee of Economic Development of Australia, and many other achievements. We've also got Tony Wood, director of the Grattan Institute's Energy Program. Tony also spent 14 years in Origin Energy, so is well versed in the commercial arrangements in the energy industry. He's also, uh, he was also Program Director of the Clinton Foundation, advising governments on low emissions energy transformation. We also have Leslie Martin of Melbourne University's Department of Economics. She specialises in environmental economics and is going to help us unpick some of her research into consumer responses, particularly around the availability of smart meter data uh, and in markets with retail competition, how people behave or change their behaviour with more or less information, or whether they change their behaviour at all. So with that brief introduction, I'll pass to our first speaker, Rod Sims, followed by Tony and then Leslie. Thanks, uh, Emma. Uh, I'll start by uh, apologising for my voice. I'm just recovering from a cold, so I'm not contagious at all. Um, occasionally I cough a bit, so hopefully that won't happen, but it is the end of a long day, so we'll see how we go. Um, I'd like to look thanks to the University of Melbourne for putting this on, thanks to the Grattan Institute. Uh, we had a lot of conversations with Tony and the Grattan Institute as we were putting the report together. Uh, we stole a few of their ideas, uh, which is what you do, uh, so uh, thanks to them for, for their, all, all those discussions. So I've got 15 minutes, I'll stick to time and just give you a broad overview of what we concluded in our report. Our focus, uh, as given to us by the government, was on affordability. So that was our remit and that's what we stuck to. Uh, I think all of our 56 recommendations uh, could equally work no matter what your emissions ambition and what reliability uh, targets you want to set. So we think we've come up with recommendations that hold up uh, wherever you want to be on the other two parts of the, uh, the equation here. So we started resetting the NEM, which is what we think needs to happen. And just very quickly, as Emma said, 56% increase in prices. Um, in real terms, roughly over the last 10 years, driven 35%. And these are NEM-wide numbers. They differ per state. Uh, but I'm sticking to NEM-wide. I realise I'm in Victoria. Uh, it's my home state. But nonetheless, I'm staying NEM-wide uh, because it's a NEM-wide set of recommendations. So 35% of the increase in power prices over the last 10 years has been due to the network, 22% to wholesale electricity, 20% uh, uh, environmental, the, 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 the subsidies for the various green schemes, uh, and then roughly 23% on retail, which is quite a large sum uh, on the retail side, and two-thirds of that was retail margin, one-third retail costs. We 
have 56 recommendations which are due to which we believe will reduce prices by 24% for the average on average for residential customers 26% CNI customers commercial industrial and 24% um, uh, small business so those numbers pretty similar um, we think the numbers are conservative uh, conservative on the generation side and particularly conservative on the retail side uh, and so we really do believe these savings are there. Of course it depends on what retail offer you are on as to what the extent of the savings are but there's savings there across the board. So what did we find uh, the problems were? In many ways you've had decisions over the last 10, even going back more years, which have loaded up the electricity system which costs, with costs that should not have been there. And when all this started, electricity costs had been happily declining in real terms for a very long period of time. And so when the problem started, people didn't think that electricity affordability was a real issue. They were interested in solving other matters. So uh, we had the loosening of rules around the regulated monopoly uh, networks. So there was a sense of a bit of deregulation of monopoly networks. People felt that uh, uh, the monopoly networks may not be investing as much as they should because the regulatory regime was too harsh. Uh, I think that was ridiculous, but that was the view then, and that caused the rules to change which really limited the AR's ability, Australian Energy Regulator's ability, to properly price control the monopoly networks. They were in a really rotten uh, position. Uh, and I can elaborate on what those changes were later on. At the same time, and I should say the states that took most advantage of those changes were New South Wales and Queensland. Queensland. So it was the state-owned network companies that took most advantage of the loosening of the rules, not the privately owned ones. And that's just a, a fact. Excessive reliability standards, again, much to do with Victoria, with New South Wales and Queensland, uh, where incidents occurred and the government just said, well, that's never going to happen again. And so they changed the reliability standards massively, and we're talking over 10 years ago here, and that, that that came together with the regulatory relaxation and so the combination of the two sent expenditure up. In New South Wales, for example, uh, the uh, network spend doubled uh, in five years. They, they actually doubled the size of the regulatory asset base in five years, which is just extraordinary. These are fixed cost businesses. Your, your bill is basically flowing from those fixed costs and they doubled the regulatory asset base in five years. Just unbelievable but caused by those first two points. And then you had excessively generous solar feed-in tariffs. As someone who was there at the time, uh, they made them generous. They never thought people were going to take them up. They thought people was irrational, stupid, offer them this ridiculously good deal. Uh, so we really need to, to load these things up to get people to move. Well, people moved really quickly. So I think in both Victoria and New South Wales, you had a 60 cent uh, feed-in tariff uh, applied when in fact it's at least six times more than it needed to be uh, and in the case of New South Wales even more for reasons in the interest of time I won't go into. So you had 
customers paying a lot more than they should be for their networks, and you had those excessive, uh, whatever you think about renewable energy and the incentives for going after it, I think everybody looking at that says those incentives were excessive and they were paid for by people who didn't have solar panels. So it was a subsidy spread. It was paid for not by the taxpayers, but by those who didn't have solar panels. On the generation side, there are a lot of things done. I've tried to keep this simple. Uh, Queensland, uh, that owns two-thirds of the generation, decided it would be a really clever idea to collapse three generators into two, uh, so that at various times they absolutely know when they can set the price, depending on demand, but at certain times those two players know when they can set the price, and they did until the minister told them to stop it. Um, New South Wales, so, so in Victoria, they sold the generation assets to promote competition. In New South Wales, they did not. They were out to maximise proceeds. They essentially sold their retail and generation businesses to the main three incumbent players. Uh, we forced them to do differently with Vale's Point, but the rest of it went to uh, the main incumbent players. So they had no eye to competition and, in fact, uh, made competition worse. Gas is a longer story than I've really put there, uh, but and it's a, it is its own story, which I won't go into, but you had this wonderful conflation of events where at the same time as um, the private sector investors wanted to invest in three LNG projects for which there wasn't enough gas, at the same time, the New South Wales and Victorian governments essentially uh, stopped gas exploration in onshore gas. Now, you can have your own view whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, but had everybody known that they were going to stop the gas exploration onshore, they probably wouldn't have allowed the three projects to go ahead. So it's just a, a strange combination of those two things occurring. So we've got a market that was short gas and gas prices have gone up by two to three times. And then the other point is we're meeting our sustainability objectives essentially through the RET. And the RET is bringing energy into the system irrespective of one of the set, when when of when the system needs the energy. Now, again, we can have different views on renewable energy targets and so forth, but the reality is uh, that was a subsidy designed solely to bring energy in. When the wind blows or the sun shines, it wasn't an attempt to uh, bring the energy on when the market needed it. So that's caused big problems, a concentrated power market, um, and uh, uh, higher prices for reasons that are there. And then the worst, most surprising thing, I think, is just been the very poor behaviour by the retailers. So here you have a market that, in my view, has wor worked most badly for consumers of any other market I can think of. Deregulation was meant to help consumers, and it has not. Uh, it has failed. Uh, so you've got marketing on the basis of deliberately opaque discounts, discounts that change once you've signed up for them, uh, excessive penalties for not paying on time, so you lose the entire discount, uh, which is not related to the, the burden that imposes on the retailer. And about 30% of people don't pay their bills on time. Over 50% of those on hardship programs don't pay their bills on time. So it really hurts. And so what you've got is uh, active customers have no idea whether a 30% discount is better than a 10% discount. 
consumers disengage from the market and you've got inactive customers paying way, way, way too much. So what have we recommended? We've recommended writing down the regulatory asset bases in Queensland, New South Wales and Tasmania. We've recommended removing the network tax in Victoria, which is brought on to fund the subsidy for uh, Alcoa. Uh, again, using the electricity market to fund other things. Uh, if you want to fund keeping Alcoa over, open, that's fine, but do you have to uh, levy energy users to do that? So we're suggesting those things be paid by taxpayers. We think this is a productivity enhancing change. It's more efficient if taxpayers paying it than the energy market paying it. Because the energy market having inflated costs is going to cause more damage than the deadweight loss of the higher taxes in our view. Again, take the cost of the premium feed-in tariffs and put those on budget as well. Queensland uh, has done that. Uh, we're urging other states to do that as well. On the generation side, we've got a lot of recommendations. Take the Queensland generation back to three players. That way they won't be quite as sure when they can set the price. Um, we're arguing that generators should not be able to acquire their way to more than 20% of the market. They can build their way there. They can invest in new capacity to do that but they're not allowed to acquire their way. The logic of that is the energy-only market we have needs competition because you're bidding in at five-minute intervals. If you, often you know when, uh, the demand, where the demand is and if you don't have enough players, too often you know when you can set the price. We're suggesting all over-the-counter trades be made transparent and declared through a registry so that we get more transparency about the prices because at the moment you can't tell what the OTC prices are. We're suggesting there be a market making obligation in South Australia. So South Australia is a market where there's just not enough liquidity. AGL dominates it. AGL is both the biggest retailer, the biggest generator, and a lot of retailers won't go into South Australia and, and seek customers because they judge they can't get enough hedges to offset the risk of taking on customers in a market where the price can go from $50 to $14,000 in half an hour. We also recommended that the government provide provided what's described here as back-end, uh, that was my warm-up uh, finish notice, very close, um, uh, price support for generation. When we were out in the market, we found a number of people wanting to put together generation projects. Some were gas, some were renewable projects uh, that they would firm up in various ways. And what we discovered is if the government could, after in years 6 to 15, underwrite that price uh, in a way that would, uh, at a low price, 45 to $50, that would enable them to bank the project that would mean the difference between the project going ahead and not. And these are projects where someone wants to come along and generate. The only way they're going to do that is if they've got people willing to take the energy. The only people who are going to do that are commercial industrial customers. And so often those commercial industrial customers can't give a long enough commitment to get bank finance. And we're also suggesting demand be bid into the wholesale market. And 
we think you've got to bring together uh, energy when the market needs it, and we think the NEG can do that. My last slide, uh, because we think the market, the retail market, is really broken, we're suggesting the Australian Energy Regulator set a default tariff rather than the retailers set their own standing offer. Instead, have and, and what's happening is because they're marketing on the basis of discounts, to market a higher discount, they're pushing up their standing offers, and some and, you, and those standing offers differ between retailers, and so you can't really tell whether one discount's better than another discount, and you've got people stuck on those standing offers. Across the NEM, 20% of small businesses are on standing offers. It's quite a remarkable number. And they're paying a price that's set way too high, hundreds of dollars higher than it needs to be. And so we're suggesting take that fluff out of those standing offers. It'll save those people who are on them hundreds of dollars. And also use that as the base for discounts so that you know that a 10% discount is not as good as a 20% discount because they're coming off the same base. Make sure that any penalties for late payments are related to cost. And we also suggested money for various welfare groups that can help vulnerable customers get the best offers. So I've run through that uh, very quickly. If that's at all of any interest, read the report. Um, uh, I hope that made some sense. Thank you. So um, Rod uh, produced a 400-page report to, to produce one of the most comprehensive um, reviews of the energy sector we've seen in a long time. It took us three reports to cover only about half of that, so we, um, we weren't up to the same task. And some of you may have been to previous events last year when we talked about this retail price issue. We had similar conclusions and overlapping recommendations, and the same with that middle um, uh, picture there, uh, some of the recommendations around the network issues. Um, and we talked about that at a, in an event earlier this year. The, um, the one bit I want to spend 10 minutes looking at is uh, the wholesale market, because we thought that was one of the most interesting developments because of the dramatic change in wholesale prices very recently, in the last couple of years. So we had a look at, um, at that, and I'm just going to cover that briefly to add a little bit more depth on that issue. Um, what startled many people and didn't, we didn't see coming, I don't think, is that um, how much wholesale prices have increased. So wholesale prices effectively is what the generators sell electricity to the retailers for and to some large industrial customers. Um, this, this chart is in real dollars and in real dollars, if you do it in nominal dollars, it obviously looks far worse. But except for the period of drought in 2079 and then that period of the carbon price, take them out and you see a very dramatic increase indeed. And those numbers haven't improved much at all in the last part of, in the first part of this year, although they've improved a little bit. Um, and, and we think this is a, uh, uh, not surprisingly, a startling outcome and is worth delving into just a little bit. Um, our conclusion from this piece of work, by the way, is that the market works as designed. It may not be as the designer intended, and that's always an interesting challenge for market designers. Um, because unintended consequences are always obvious with hindsight. Um, they're not at all obvious with foresight. 
And so what's happened here is this market has actually done what it was designed to do, but it's led to some interesting, some interesting outcomes. Some of them have been physical and some of them have been not so physical. And so we've identified um, between 2015 and 2017, the total amount of valuable electricity traded in the wholesale market went from just over $40 billion to over $100 billion per year. That's an extraordinary amount of money to be thrashing around in the system. Now, I should point out, for those of you who don't follow the electricity market, there is a lot of under undergoing contracting going on that doesn't mean that all that money passed through to the end consumer. But these are very large numbers indeed and obviously are worth spending a little time understanding. There are three pieces there and I'm going to touch on each of them briefly. The first thing is associated with higher input costs. Um, it's a very what someone might call sad but realist, real uh, outcome in that two of the major inputs to the electricity generators in the last few years have been um, significant and real and had nothing to do with the actual market itself. That is, increases in the thermal coal cost, the, effectively the, that's the, the chart there is the thermal price, the price of thermal coal uh, ex Newcastle. Now, some of the coal generators weren't, on, weren't paying that, so they're doing very nicely indeed. At the same time, uh, another story which some of those of you have been to previous events between MEI and Grattan, you've heard um, talk about the gas issue. Gas prices have increased dramatically, again, at the same time. So the underlying challenge there is, is very significant. So you've got two major inputs changing at the same time. The market also then f was faced with two other problems, and that is the closure of two large generators in the last 12 months. So what happens is that not only does the higher cost of gas feed through to gas generation, but because the way the wholesale market works, whoever is the highest bidder into the market on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis sets the price. When it's gas, that means if the gas price itself is higher, then the overall price lifts and the whole market makes a whole lot more money and prices move up for everybody. That's the way the market's intended to work, but of course the obvious objective is that what should come out of that is that new supply should enter the market to make up for that situation. The chart on the left shows that it wasn't, even though people get very alarmed at very high prices, and you'll see there, these, are these, these bars in this chart make up, they show you how much of the total amount, the average price in each month is made up of individual half-hourly prices in those individual price bands. So you can see in 2015, most of it, prices around $30 a megawatt hour was pretty low prices, indeed $25 to $50 a megawatt hour half hours. But as you get to 2016-17 and 2017, this is for Victoria, this is after Hazelwood shut down, it wasn't the really high prices, the grey ones that are setting the price, it actually is those dark red ones which are around $200 to $300 a megawatt hour. So what's happening here is that the market is doing exactly what it's expected to do, it's blowing through the higher cost of inputs. The bottom chart is from South Australia and that shows what happened, this is a supply demand curve and it shows what happened when we went, when basically when Northern and Hazelwood shut down. So in 2015, you see the dark red line, which is a line of best through, through all those red dots, and each one of those is a half hourly price. And the orange one, which is what happened in 2017, you can see the entire chart moves to the left and upwards. And that's exactly what happens when you would see the sort of things we're talking about. So in some ways, that market is doing what is expected to do and sending very strong price signals to um, new investors, is the idea. Now, I think the answer, what we would say from that is that that's what the market should be doing. And we'll come back to um, the consequences of that. 
but it's most of the result we've seen. So most of that result we've seen, that $80 billion has come from a combination of higher input costs um, and higher uh, replacement costs. When Hazelwood shut down, you may remember in November of 2016, it was announced in five months' time it was going to be shut down. Many people thought the price increase might be around 10 per cent. The Victorian government, some other people tried to convince themselves it might be a lot less, maybe 4 or 5 per cent. Um, it was 19 per cent because fortunately we had a lot of excess capacity, so we didn't have problems of supply uh, on the East Coast, but we had a big problem of prices. The market responded very, responds very sharply to the withdrawal of very low-cost electricity, high-emission, high-polluting electricity, but low-cost electricity. The third thing, and I don't want to put too much emphasis on this, but it's probably one of the more intriguing things we found when we looked at the numbers, because it's a relatively small part of the total cost increase that we've seen, is the way the market actually operates on a half-hour and five-minute basis. Basically, um, what we've described in this report is gaming, and gaming can sound like a pretty negative term, and I guess it probably is, is that <clears throat> under certain circumstances, people can play by the rules, generators bidding into this market can play by the rules, but they can end up with situations that produce very favourable outcomes for them in a short period of time, which is not to the benefit of the overall market. That is, it doesn't... High prices that do not lead to the sort of reaction you need in response to real physical shortages in the market. So what happens here is that the, we've got a spot market in which bidding and rebidding is part of the system. That is, if things change between today and tomorrow and a generator is offline, people need to be able to rebid their supply to deal with that. Unfortunately, what it means is that in responding to that scarcity pricing, sometimes generators can find themselves <coughs> excuse me, in a position where they have even short-term market power. So it doesn't even have to be the sort of high levels of market concentration that Rob was talking about. It could be short periods of time. And so what we found is that in the last few years, that sort of behaviour has delivered some pretty high profits to some of the companies involved. And the chart at the right-hand side simply shows that that problem got very bad between 2012 and 2016. Now, it's improved a bit because the biggest bar there you'll see is the Queensland block. And partly what changed is the Queensland government owns the generators and they told them to stop it. And they did, mostly. Now, as a way of determining policy, telling people to stop it, I don't think is a particularly long-lasting and structural uh, change, but it can work. And if the owner of the company says stop it, they do. So that's what we saw. Um, so finally, what should we do about this? Because what we're saying in this report, there are some things that almost certainly governments can't do anything about. There are some things they can. So we've said, look, first thing is we need to have some stable, credible policy. Because what is it that's stopping getting the lowest cost mix coming into the system? It's the uncertainty about policy, and we've had that going on and on and on. Everybody, uh, I think, knows that very un unfortunate story, particularly around climate change. And whether or not you think this thing called the nag is actually a nag, I don't know. But the really interesting question is it might actually, for the first time, head us in the, in the direction where we need to go. It doesn't solve all the problems by any means, but it actually gets us moving. The second thing is there are, there are some things that we can do to keep downward pressure on input costs. Some of the things Rod didn't emphasise in his presentation, but as part of the report he's done, but a much more substantial piece of work that the ACCC has done over several couple of years now, several periods, reporting six monthly, is looking at the gas market. There are things that be, can be done to make sure we keep the maximum pressure on gas prices. And thirdly, in our view, 
We think governments to be, to need to be more honest about future prices. There's many people who will tell you how much prices are going to go down by. Now, Rod will you know, has put forward a very interesting piece of analysis as to how much the, their recommendations of the ACCC will pull down prices. So has Alan Finkel. So has the Energy Security Board. If you add them all up, electricity prices will be negative. They'll be paying us to take it. So all I'm suggesting is that when you look at these numbers, each of these steps makes sense, and the numbers make sense, but the overall picture, I think, is going to be problematic. So the really important question is um, the one in red here. Before I get to that, I think there's a couple of things governments can do about gaming. They need to change some of the rules. I, one of the responses we had from the companies who thought we were criticising them in this, and we were to some extent, were criticising the rules rather than the behaviour. We were saying these companies are obeying the rules. They are playing by the rules. The rules need to change. That was our point. And there are several things you can do. It's very important that we don't just take a rule that was developed in the United States or in Germany or the UK and put it into Australia because the chances are it won't work so well because our system's different. So there's several things we've suggested need to be looked at. And we understand that some of them are going to be looked at. Um, one of the reasons we think we need to be honest about future prices is the chart on the bottom right-hand side of this chart. And that's just showing one estimate of where wholesale prices are today and where they're likely to be on the estimate of people who do this analysis for the Finkel Review uh, by 2050. And you can see most of those numbers sit around $50 a megawatt hour and above. Now, the only one that sits above, below that is large-scale solar PV without storage. So if you think you need to have, we have to have backup when you have a lot of solar in the system, then you need to think about large-scale solar PV with storage. And when you do that, you see all these numbers are $60 to $80 a megawatt hour. My only conclusion from that is I'm always therefore concerned a little when you see people saying prices are going to head to less than $50 a megawatt hour. I just don't think that is a viable, sustainable option because what it basically is saying is people are not going to be making money and therefore and they'll invest in a market where they won't make money. I'm not sure that's a viable future um, scenario. Finally, I would say that we have so many reports now, all of which are done, they're substantive, and they're coming at from slightly different perspectives. So Rod talked about the three elements, some people call it the trilemma. Rod's talked about the affordability side of things, which is exactly the, the, the sort of emphasis you'd expect from the ACCC. The AMO, the market operator, has talked about it from the reliability perspective, because their worry is keeping the lights on. And to some extent, the National Energy Guarantee is trying to integrate that with climate change. The problem is we've got to do all these things, and if you add them up, there's probably well over 150 recommendations. The next step, well, how will we make sure that we don't drown in recommendations and reports, and in three years' time, we're wondering what the hell happened to all of those recommendations. We think that, therefore, coming out of the next Energy Council meeting on the, I think, mid-August, should be a focus on what's big and what's doable soon. Because if we don't have focus and priorities, the chances are we'll be having another set of reports talking about how the market failed us in 10 years' time. Thank you. I'm going to talk a little bit about the retail side of things. So for the last five years, I've been working with David Byrne, my colleague in economics, um, on with several electricity retailers and with Billcap, which is a startup that provides a customer engagement platform. 
We received an ARC grant to understand a few things. So how consumers respond to electricity prices, how they respond to personalized feedback about their electricity use, to social comparisons, to nudges, how they form expectations about future bills, how they respond to bill shock. Finally, what motivates customers to shop around to switch retailers. So there are currently hundreds of active prices in electricity for what is essential and essentially an identical service. So what is the source of this price dispersion? So to find out, with our PhD student, with Jashi Na, we ran what economists call an audit study. So we basically, we hired a team of actors, and we gave them, for every single call, a different set of customer characteristics, and we gave them scripts to use to call up their retailers and to negotiate electricity tariffs. So we basically created a call center to call the call centers. Now, when we did this, we learned a few things. So first of all, you get a much better initial quote if you say that you're calling to switch providers than if you say that you're moving into an area and you're trying to set up a new connection, i.e. if you reveal a willingness to search. Now this is a cross-call variation, and of course someone who's moving may be a little different. And so what we also had is within call variation. So the first thing that went, when you called up is you revealed your characteristics and you asked for a quote. You wrote it down, and then you revealed more information about how much you know, how much searching you've already done. Um, and so we also then had this within call variation. And what we found there is that the rate that you can then negotiate drops significantly when you quote a reference price, um, especially if you quote a low reference price. Um, surprisingly, we found that the source of this price didn't matter at all. So you can say you got it from the comparison website, you can say you got it from another retailer and name, and name the retailer, you can say you got it from your mate and you don't remember where he had it, but he had this price and you'd really like the same price, can you have it please? Right? What mattered not, was not the source, the credibility of it, but what the final price was that you were giving, the, the price that you were using to anchor the negotiation. Finally, and this is what I think speaks to the, the ACCC report the most, the level of confusion in these calls was, was insane. So we had prices that would be quoted with GST, without GST, only for direct debit and electronic statements, only with, with the concession discount already included, but GST not, without the concession discount included. Um, we had the discounts relative to the initial quote in the conversation, relative to the standing charge, relative discounts that only applied to the variable or variable and fixed, and all of this would vary within one conversation. So it wasn't just that one call center representative, like they would, we'd say, well, that number, or your reference quote must include GST, and so I'm going to give you one without. And so, so in the econ literature, there is um, an expression for what we call intentional muddling, um, which is obfuscation, and we have models for that. Um, and, and we can think about when it's a profitable thing to do. I don't think that in this case the confusion was necessarily intentional. In fact, it probably was not. But regardless, it made the negotiation much more difficult than it would have been had there actually been a clear set reference price on which all of this was, was then going. Now, one motivation for our study was to check a claim that we had heard from consumer advocacy groups that low-income households are paying more for electricity. Um, and so you, there is a concession rebate. Um, in Victoria, the concession rebate pays a fraction of your bill. But if you're on a higher base rate, um, then some of that subsidy is disappearing. Um, and so in econ speak, we, we call this incomplete pass-through of, of the subsidy. Now, what was it, one of the things that was interesting with our study is that we found that there is no explicit discrimination in the negotiations against concessioners. So that was one of the characteristics we varied, and we did, definitely did not see that. The deals were out there for those who search and negotiate well. 
Right. Um, that said, in the case of a few retailers, the lowest rates could only be obtained if you were willing to accept direct debit, um, which is likely to be costly for low-income households if they receive an unexpectedly high bill. So that's the price, the variation in price that we currently have. Variation primarily due to search or to lack of search. Um, I'd like to take my remaining time to argue um, what I believe the electricity sector needs in terms of variation in price. It's a different type. Because electricity is not cheap to store, when you consume power really matters to system cost, even more so as we integrate renewables that are not easily dispatchable on demand. Currently, and this is some other work that we've done, shown there's a large cross-subsidy. Customers who are using less at peak times essentially pay for those who are using more at peak times. Their fixed rates are higher because of the peak use of the others. So if instead of fixed rate costs that were, if instead of fixed rates, costs were actually passed through, that would create real incentives for demand side management, which could reduce system cost. And in addition, it would, when we were talking about the wholesale, on the wholesale side, prices that vary with market condition would reduce the um, incentive and the ability of the generators to exercise market power. So what might this look like? There are a few different ways to allow prices to reflect the current cost of production. There are critical peak prices, um, which are in use in, in some places. So for instance, in, Sac in San Francisco and in Sacramento and in California. How do those work? So PNG&E has implemented them there. Up to 15, years, um, 15 days in every single summer, they can call critical peak days. They call these ahead of time. They then charge an extra 60 cents per kilowatt hour from 2 to 7 PM. And for the other 2,853 hours of, of the year, they charge 2.4 cents less per kilowatt hour. This is an opt-in plan. You take it if, if, you, want, if you want to participate in this. Critical um, peak time rebates are, are more common. Um, so we see these in Southern California, San Diego, Maryland, New Orleans, Ohio. Power Shop's been running them here. And here, instead of being charged at those peak times, you get paid for using less than you, you typically use. Um, the problem with these peak time rebates, there's some serious flaws. Um, one of them is that there's an incentive to game the baseline. So there's an incentive to game your regular use. Um, but it, probably an even bigger one, is that a lot of money is being spent right now on what is just natural variation in use. So some days you're just not home. Um, that's been our experience in my household with the PowerShop discounts as we get paid every single time. We happen to not be around. Um, and so if you think about it in a system where um, you only have um, you know, one retailer, well, sorry. Moving on to the next one. <laughs> so the other one, the other one that we typically think of is real-time prices. Um, and so, before, um, before two weeks ago, I would say, well, real-time prices is just super rare in residential. We don't see anyone actually implementing real-time prices. Um, you see it for an industrial customers, but you've you've never really seen it at the residential side, and that might make sense. However, now in New South Wales, there's a brand new startup that will charge you the spot rates. Um, so they charge you ten months, ten dollars a month for their overhead, and otherwise you, you see the spot prices. Um, and so it's one of the um, something that I'm actually really keen to see how that plays out. So economists want prices that vary with market conditions, at a minimum that vary on the really extreme conditions, or at, a, at least for a subset of some key users, potentially just the industrial users, but maybe more broadly. Our question is, well, do consumers want them too? Um, so do you want to spend a lot of time thinking about your electricity bill? Probably not. Um, electricity consumption is typically a low priority, which can be rational given constraints on your attention. 
That said, consumers are different, um, and we don't necessarily need many to change their behavior at peak times in order to lower system costs. So having this as an opt-in could be a very could be an interesting option. So what about bill volatility? Um, this is something that we've looked at a lot. So some customers may not mind. Others most definitely do. Um, we've documented in our research that unexpectedly high bills is one of the key factors that leads customers to search and to see if they want to switch to other retailers. Now, part of the answer to this may then be mitigating the surprise factor, which is something that we probably want to be doing anyway, right? So through online bills, through apps, through reminders. There's also quite a bit of innovation in billing that I feel like we haven't yet tapped into. So ways to allow customers to see the true prices without necessarily experiencing the volatility in, in their payment flows. So for instance, um, there's um, in California, they've been experimenting with smoothing bills via an accumulating account. So it's sort of like an automatic no or low interest loan. So you see what the whole bill would have been, but you don't necessarily pay all of it in that month. There's also systems of forward power purchases where you buy upfront and then you get automatically paid market rates for whatever you don't use. That allows people to see the opportunity cost of use at that time without necessarily having the uh, large cost increase. Or there's models like, for instance, what we have with our, in, um, so what you have in the, in the power shop type, where if you buy upfront, if you use a lot of power, it just means that you have to buy power again sooner. Um, which may, which essentially is the same thing, but is not necessarily, doesn't feel the same, doesn't necessarily cause the same financial stress as receiving a very large unexpected bill. Finally, the, on the side of technology, um, there are batteries or smart fridges or smart ACs that allow us to actually smooth the load itself. And we need these better pricing plans in order to give real incentives for people to, to, to adopt these. So in summary, we currently observe large variation in the price in, across households in the prices that people are paying, but it's not the right type of variation. It's high rates for those who don't search, and it's a cross-subsidy to those who are using a lot of electricity at peak times. We want simple bills, but we also want user pays. And currently, we don't really have either. Um, I'd like to encourage both firms and customers to seriously consider alternative pricing plans that have less cross-subsidy along the dimensions that we don't particularly care to subsidize and more incentives that would lead to overall system cost savings. Thank you. So I think now we'll have our panel discussion. So. I'd like to invite the panelists up here to the stage. Um, I think that was really fascinating, particularly, Leslie, hearing your findings of your research. It's not often that we have so starkly crystallized for us this push and pull that we constantly feel with our energy bills. You know, we, we want a simple price, we want to pay up front, we want to know what to expect, but at the same time, we don't want to hear that, you know, prices were incredibly low or negative in our jurisdiction, um, say, in the wholesale market. Uh, and that we're not winning from that. So, you know, it's it's like we want the best of both worlds. And as you said, right now, we're not really delivering on either of those uh, objectives. Although it sounds as though from your research that there is some bill innovation out there. Um, it's just maybe the take-up's not high. And I think that's so fascinating um, to look at the research from Rod's uh, consumer studies as well, which set a massive proportion, much higher than what I would have expected, of people have not switched within the last 12 or 18 months. A huge proportion. I think it was 
upwards of 80 or 90 percent. Um, one of my favorite things to do in a room full of energy professionals or people interested in energy is ask them when the last time they looked at their bill was. And nine times out of 10, the answer will be, I haven't looked at it in five years. I couldn't care less. <laughs> uh, I think that's, that's really interesting because even with people who are engaged with this policy debate, <coughs> engaged in the energy market, the effort to expend to try and pull apart, disentangle the offers that we get and how much that's worth for us and the relative trade-off with our spare time, our free time, or the time that we would invest doing other things is just not there. It's too painful, it's too confusing, or it's just not worth the effort. So people don't believe that there's a payoff there. So I'd be really interested to talk to you more about, about some of those things. Um, and we've got about uh, 20 to 25 minutes for questions as well. Um, I thought maybe I could open up with um, Rod, your talk you touched on deregulation in uh, some key markets and how that had actually not achieved what the original intent was, um, which was efficiency, uh, not so much competition because we understand that natural monopolies exist in parts of the energy market and they're important, they get us efficiencies beyond competitive markets. Um, but I mean, do you think, was it ever considered to um, scrap the market design entirely and go to a re-regulated system? And what would your response be to people who said, we need to go back to regulating prices? Uh, look, it's always hard to put genies back in the bottle. Um, the idea, though, that consumers should be paying more for the privilege of having the choice of their retailer, I think is nonsense. Um, that has seriously been suggested at various times. Um, of course, there's nothing wrong with price dispersion. There's nothing wrong with people paying different prices. But when you find uh, disengaged customers or people who can't engage, English language difficulties, whatever, paying so much more than other people are paying. Uh, I mean, why are 20% of small businesses on those ridiculously high standing offers? They just don't have the time. And I think the market has been made deliberately confusing by the retailers. I know that sounds like a, a nasty allegation, but I think in terms of the way their marketing departments go about things, I think that is the upshot. Uh, they have benefited from it being confusing. So you've got a market that is too confusing to engage with. You've got price dispersion, which is, I think, encouraging people to spend more time on electricity than they want to, and is itself a deadweight loss on the system. And I think anyone who argues for price dispersion cannot argue for the people who don't engage that much to be paying as much as they are. Whatever your economics, that is just a bad outcome. So we're uh, arguing for quite radical change in terms of mandatory codes for comparative websites, in terms of the regulator setting that default price, in terms of having a common price against which discounts can happen. So we're trying to take the silliness out of the price dispersion and we're trying to make the market simple to understand. I honestly think I mean, it'll be up to governments whether they pick that up. 
But even if they do pick it up, if that doesn't work, then I think the market will run a risk of re-regulation because I just don't think, in a practical sense, uh, politicians can uh, allow this to continue. Now, I hope it doesn't happen that way because I think there are, there is chances of more innovation through um, uh, people getting rooftop solar panels and I suspect for the vast majority of people in this room, uh, provided you can, because you're not living in a flat, provided you can, it's economic to do so. So the more that happens as the price of battery comes around. So there's going to be many ways to engage with the market which will benefit you, but we need a market for that to happen. If we re-regulate it, that won't happen. So I hope we don't need to re-regulate it, but criticising politicians who move that way, given the outcomes we've got, that's unfair on the politicians. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting point. Um, we don't want to scrap the whole thing. We might lose out on important things like the incentive to innovate and the kinds of bill innovations or retail innovations that Leslie's been talking about. Yeah. It does go to another point, though, of the size of the task to reform now. Um, Tony, you mentioned the cumulative volume of recommendations that are now in front of COAG. I mean, uh, if you were to give them the top five priorities for the next meeting in a bit over a week, what would they be? Part of our recommendations. <laughs> Recommendation well, one to five. Um, if I had my choices, I wouldn't give it to them. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the evidence is, is pretty clear that it's very difficult. I mean, there's not many parts of the world that try and run an energy system with the complexity of the multi-jurisdictional governments, some of which have got conflict of interest through ownership, the sort of thing Rod talked about before in Queensland and New South Wales, uh, some of whom have got conflict of policy because they're driven by a particular, however you think about ideology, they want more coal-fired power stations and they want more renewables. Um, and of course, hardly, if they ever meet, if they meet when they normally do meet, which is every six months, it's hardly the same ministers every second two, two meetings in a row. So thinking that is a functional way of running this thing when you've got uh, you know, something of between 100 and 150 recommendations to deal with, all of which clearly could improve things, each of which could improve things, is a big challenge. I think that I would sort of, I think this, where we would, if you think of the, the, the parts of the system um, and where the biggest changes could be, could be affected, um, then you, and, and Rod's laid them out pretty clearly, but I think in terms of the, um, in, in the wholesale market, I think we need to get on, right now, we need to get on top of these rules, because it's only going to get worse if we don't. It's not going to bring, that, bring, bring back lower gas prices, it's not going to bring back um, uh, the power stations that close down, but it might avoid things getting a whole lot worse in that context. Right now, we're seeing the real possibility prices will come down a bit because of the large um, wave of subsidised renewables that are coming into the system in the next couple of years. The networks is a big deal. Um, you know, it's, it's an area where the ACCC and ourselves and others have, have looked at this. Um, I don't, I'd be surprised pleasantly if the governments are up for the sort of recommendations that we've made. Um, I certainly think there's been some wins and focusing on, and getting those through will be important. Right now there's a significant determination from the AER to reduce the, the allowed rate of return. It's a relative, it sounds like a relatively small percentage, but a small percentage on a really big number is a fairly big number. And that really needs to go through and the sort of things that are being pursued there need to be followed through because there are some big changes there. And I think on the, on the, on the retail side, you know, I think there's four or five things Rod's recommended which are almost no-brainers and could be done quickly, 
one of the challenges is getting agreement from the, it may very well be that each state goes off and does its own thing because there's, in, in some in that consumer area, there's a lot of consumer legislation. So it would be ideal if we could find ways to continue to run this as though it was to pretend we actually had cooperative federalism, um, but it would be okay if we agreed on what four or five things were and we started moving on those. And I think that's where those three or four things I've mentioned is where I'd start. Mm -hmm. um, let, before we throw to the audience, so get ready with your questions. Um, Leslie, just one more question for you. You mentioned um, how important peak, peak time of use charges can be in changing people's behaviour and that they are real incentives and that people really will respond to those time of use charges. Um, and that that could be a significant area of efficiency gain for the system in the future. Um, I'm wondering what, you know, nudge, nudge policy has kind of shown us that you constantly need to provide people with new reasons or a new angle to change their behaviour, otherwise they become a bit um, uh, sort of resistant to it. So you might notice an initial effect where people curb their behaviour, uh, but over time, over a number of years, they sort of tend towards an, another normal. Um, so. In your research, is that is that something that happens with peak time of use charges, or can you keep um, changing the charges to incentivise people over the long term? So, so one, I was not specifically talking about time of use. Um, so, time of use are prices that are still fixed; they're set a year ahead of time. Um, now, they vary by hour of day, and so to some extent, they follow the market conditions a little better. Um, but they tend not to, um, they don't actually represent market conditions at a, at a certain time. So they don't capture the really hot Melbourne summer day when everyone's turning on their ACs at the same time. Um, the, the how, so when you ask when people do have these price spikes, are they responding in a behavioral way or are they starting to respond by changing the technologies? Um, and so what we've seen is that you do see technologies changing. Um, you see that people respond much more um, when you have, for instance, um, some sort of in-home display that makes prices salient. Um, but again, this is not about everyone responding. This is about a subset of people who are happy to have a glowing orb in their living room and find it kind of neat, and that they sort of say, oh, the orb is, glown, you know, is now glowing red, and so we're going to turn down the AC a little bit. Um, to the extent that you can start making this automated, that you can start having it be that your AC automatically is just going to run a little bit differently because the prices are really high, I think that's when you're going to get overall more people actually make, doing behavior change. Mm -hmm. um, in a separate, one of the things that we've been doing, but actually with the water utility, is we ran a really interesting experiment trying to understand habit formation. And Dave and I will be talking, I'm sure, a lot more about this over, over the next year. But um, we basically put, um, we, people put devices in their showers um, that basically showed them how long their shower was. <laughs> and so there was a, a drowning polar bear. And so like over, over the course of your shower, the polar, polar bear would do worse and worse. And, and so what they've shown before, and so this has been done in, in other contexts, you, you show that people take much shorter showers when the, when the polar bear is drowning. Um, and but the question that we had was like really like massive changes, right? Like 20 to 30 percent shorter showers. And so the question we had was, 
well, we, you know, what happens when you turn that off? And, and then can you, is it, you know, is, it, is this, how do you form a habit? Because this is something that's purely behavioral, right? Like people are not changing their technology as a result of the, of, of the polar bear. And what's been, what's been interesting for us is that we see that, you know, indeed that you see this, this um, sort of immediately there's this reduction. So you have this decay of how short your showers are after you've turned this off. Um, but, you know, the, when we then said, well, what if you have more exposure to this? And what if we turn it on and off? And we're, we're, we're still ana analyzing some of the data, but what we basically see is what really gets people to just change their behavior where it's, they seem to almost shift in the, in the long run is to have a type of training wheels, right? Where you have it on for a while and then you take it off. And, and then the next time you have it on for a while, people immediately jump back to taking shorter showers. And then that time, it sort of, it lasts with them longer. And in a way that even if you just count up the total number of showers, having an on and off of polar bear on showers is much more effective in changing your habits than if you just had it on all the time and then took it off. Right? And so it's a little bit like this, we've been thinking of it as a training wheels model, right? You try it a little bit, and then you're on your own, and then you try it a little bit, and then you're on your own, and then we actually see people that are flipping to them permanently taking shorter showers. Um, and so I, I think it's an interesting area where it's, 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 we're doing this with one of the people on our team as a psychologist, and so he comes from the psychology literature, and sort of bringing together the, the econ guys who have econ models of how you form habits within the psychology models has been really interesting. So what you're saying is we need a, a drowning panda bear for electricity or something. <laughs> but no, but this, this is purely opt-in. So I, I, mean, I think going back to the heterogeneity on this, like you have some people who find this fun. And, and actually, we were surprised. Like I, I, I pitched this at home, and my partner was like, there's no way we're putting a polar bear in our shower. And, but, but you get, we, you know, people were offered, do you want to do this? And a whole, you know, we had quite a few people who said yes. And then we had a thing where afterwards, once they sent them back for the data, we said, do you want it back? And most people wanted it back. And we got very enthusiastic letters about like, and I think part of it is that you have a household where multiple people are not necessarily of the same interest. And so what was happening is that the parents really wanted the teenagers to take shorter showers. And you know, it helped everyone take shorter showers. And, yeah. But sorry, I'm, I'm taking way too long in a subject that's not exactly what we're here for. We could talk all night about the polar bears. Um, so I guess we should throw to questions now. Um, oh, great. <laughs> lots of hands shooting up. Uh, in the row down the front here. Um, hi, my name's Lance Hodge. I've got a question. I guess it's mostly for, for Rod Sims. Um, like the idea about critical uh, peak day pricing, um, have done some work in that area. And I'm wondering, though, why we would start with residential customers. There's whenever <clears throat> there's been an innovation in pricing, <clears throat> and particularly uh, in Victoria with smart meters, which make that possible, there's been resistance because people might not be able to deal with it opt-in is a possibility, but you're likely to get passive winners. Not, not a bad idea because they've been subsidizing everyone else, but it doesn't actually change the load shape. So um, the, the question I'm going to ask is, why hasn't regulation, uh, if there is an interesting cost-reflective network pricing, let's say, um, started with large customers who have more savvy, have had interval metering forever, and there's a very good example from Osnet Services of the efficacy and the ability 
of those customers to change their behavior. So just very quickly, Osnet Services made a mandatory critical peak day price for their customers above 160 megawatt hours uh, annually. That's about a little less than 2,000 customers. They reduced their system peak demand by 7%. This is a couple of years old, this data. Um, and that translated into a system peak demand reduction. This is system, not spatial, um, of 5%. So quite efficacious. People who can deal with it, people who have the meters, and they didn't squawk, and it created dynamic efficiency changes because the market came with ways to help these customers do things. So why are they the only network in the country, at least until very recently, that has this kind of price? Well, look, I, I, I mean, just in the interest of time to get more questions in, I mean, we, we've argued that if you could bid in demand management into the wholesale price, the wholesale pool, that would allow particularly large customers to benefit from those spikes. So it's not the same as critical peak pricing, but it, I think, would have the same effect. So I think people will come out of the woodwork to gather that up and put it into the system. So I, I think that would... I, I like the way you're going, but I think that's probably a, a more effective way and should have been done years ago. Next question. Um, just to the... To your right there. Thank you. Thank you. My name's Ian. I'm from Castle, Maine. My question's about electric vehicles. If I plug in my electric vehicle uh, at a time that uh, uh, is convenient for me at home, I can uh, juice up the batteries uh, to my uh, pleasure and uh, achieve some sort of improvement in price for myself. What would it take? to have the electric vehicle's batteries actually be able to feed from the car to the grid and uh, they would be the batteries of choice for people's houses. What would that take? Why? <laughs> Why? Look, technically, there's no real barriers to doing what you're describing. In fact, that would be the, the scenario in which um, electric vehicles become mobile absorbers and suppliers of electricity is very much part of that scenario. Um, there's some challenges with it. What personally is what you don't want is you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 vehicles all coming home and charging up at the same time. That makes it worse, obviously. Um, but if you can find ways of people, you know, this comes a lot back to sort of the pricing regimes of how do you give people the incentive to consume and supply in a way that's most cost effective. And the second and more intriguing thing to me is going to be whether we see personalised EVs or whether we actually adopt more uh, autonomous vehicles or um, even own our, our vehicles. Because if you, had, if you think about the way those vehicles would work, there's probably fewer of them and they're not parked much of the time at all. They're actually being used a lot. We have fewer vehicles, but they run a lot of kilometres. They may not be available to the system. So I think there's a, a really interesting set of scenarios coming out around electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and other forms of um, low emission vehicles. But in terms of technology, there's, there's almost no technology barrier. There are some interesting pricing and regulatory challenges ahead rather than technology. And I am sure that there are companies who can do what you've described. The, I think our policy and regulations have to catch up with that technology as they do in other areas of technology, to be honest. I think we had an enthusiastic question up the back there, Megan. Thank you. Um, my name is Adam Zaborczyk. I'm effectively on sabbatical at the moment, so private 
individual. Um, my question is to Rod Sims. Um, at the risk of mischaracterizing some of your comments, um, you made comments with respect to renewable energy policies um, to the effect that um, irrespective or regardless of what one might think about renewable energy, certain policy decisions were unwise and led to um, higher retail prices. So I guess my question is, um, if one took the view that um, it was desirable uh, to uh, achieve emissions reductions in the electricity sector in order to uh, meet the Paris targets, what uh, policy measures would you recommend or what interventions would you take? Well, I think a long time ago, people decided that uh, having some form of emission trading scheme, which capped the emissions down, uh, was a reasonably good way to go. And the advantage of that, as distinct from the carbon tax, was you actually set the trajectory and by definition it's achieved. So, and then the price sorts itself out. So if you want guaranteed emission reductions, I think the obvious way to do it is through some form of um, emissions trading scheme that sets the trajectory down. Now, the problem with that overseas is governments have slightly wimped out when the target got a bit difficult. So it's complicated whichever, so, I mean, whichever method you come up with to reduce emissions has run into problems. Um, uh, and so the, the theoretically perfect answer, which I think probably an emissions trading scheme is, with that guaranteed trajectory, which you know by definition of the legislation underpinning the scheme, you will meet, even that has fallen apart because of political issues. So my point would be um, just be careful. How, I mean, it, one of the unfortunate things with the emissions trading scheme is it ran into, uh, when it came along, these massive increase in, in network prices. And so you had this confusion between what was causing price increases, and a fair bit of it was network prices, not the carbon scheme. But you've still got to, I think, when you make these changes to bring about emission reduction, just have some eye to practical affordability, because if you don't, you'll lose the political consensus. So you've just got to be practical whichever way you are. I think many of us think where we are now, we want to go forward, probably the next uh, the step to take. That's just because where we are now. The reality is that because of the political problems that Rod's talking about, we're going to try everything else first before we come back to what we should have tried in the first place. Um, it's just going to take us a while. Got a question at the middle here? At the risk of um, adding to the long list of reports that you mentioned, I think the, one of the most interesting reports in the last couple of weeks was the AEMO report. And in particular, uh, their emphasis on the need to change the networks, uh, accepting that we're going to go to a decentralised model of generation. And where I despair on this is that's a nice idea. So that's, change, that's the way the, the, the whole technology is going to change over the next 20 years and they recommend changing the networks. We have a patchwork quilt of ownership of the networks. And I notice there's a bit of a favouring the privatised ones. I don't have a problem with privatised ones. We have no visibility of the clauses of all those contracts and what guarantees are made to those owners because they're all nominally commercial in confidence. These are all regulated monopolies. And in your chart, Rod, they're the most significant increase in price 
in whether the government owned and privatised in the last 10 years. I have no faith in the system. Who's going to pay for changing the networks over the next 10 years as we change the generation mix? I have no faith that there is a system to do that or we just all pay through higher network charges. Well, look, it's a tricky issue. The debate between more generation, more network is just a, a really uh, difficult issue. Um, hopefully, if we can come up with more distributed energy, uh, then we can address many of our climate issues without having to build transmission lines out to the middle of nowhere. Um, but it's a tough one. I mean, I, it really is a tough issue. Okay. We might have um, two more questions, brief questions, <laughs> very brief questions. But one so, of us has got to catch a plane. One of, one of us has got to catch a plane, exactly. I'm just mindful that uh, I'm actually part of the Women in Economics Network, and I was wondering <laughs> if uh, yeah. any of the females in the room would like to ask a question. Well, I asked three, so maybe that would <laughs> maybe that'll do for now. Um, you know, up the back there, yeah, red, red hand. Um, uh, <coughs> I, I want to ask this question. I, I haven't understood. I have lived in uh, Melbourne since 24 years ago. About for about 20 years, I pay only one gas bill to one company. And then the last two years or so, I didn't understand. The body cop hasn't explained to me. And then uh, I become to have two split gas uh, bill. And then the other one is purely for the hot water, uh, to boil water for, for bathing, for kitchen, you know, hot water, just again. And, and then the last two months, I paid like $100. And then the previous uh, two months, like uh, $90. I, I could understand why I had to pay so much gas. I, I remember the one bill for 20 years, it was very small. It was like uh, combining the hot water. It was only about 30, 40 for two months. Now it has come up so high, it's like a, a more than double, uh, you know, many times more than the, but before I ever understood the problem. <laughs> I think that sounds like a, a question for Rod and Leslie and probably one that we can't fit into just one yeah. minute of <laughs> the remaining question time, but I think broadly speaking, the um, chart that Rod showed uh, at the beginning shows that it's a, it's a combination of factors and there is no one single answer to why our prices have risen so much in the last 10 years and um, the solution is complex. We shouldn't underplay the complexity of the issues. Um, and COAG certainly has a task on its hands. Gas question, wasn't it? I mean, so gas prices have gone up through the yeah, the East Coast domestic shortage of gas and the combination with the moratorium on gas exploration in some states um, constraining supply. Well, I think I've taken you slightly over time. So thank you very much for your participation this evening. I hope you found that enlightening. Thanks to our speakers, Melbourne Uni and Grattan Institute. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate. 
grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.